Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to St. Paul's Blur Street. I'm really glad uh, you took the time to join us today. Uh, those of you joining us online and all of you here over the long weekend, it's, it's great to see you. Back in the day, I remember learning in preaching class that the point of an introduction to a sermon is to build a connection with the listener and to convince them that what you're going to talk about uh, is relevant to their life. But it's too risky this morning to do that because of where we are in our summer preaching series. We're in the final few weeks looking at the Ten Commandments and how these can be life-giving for us here in the heart of the city. And because even though none of us like to be told what to do, whether we're spiritually searching or already a disciple of Jesus, I think we do want to know the right way to live. Uh, the first four commandments showed us how to love God. Uh, the last six uh, focus our attention on what it means in tangible terms to love our neighbors. And we come to number seven today. You shall not commit adultery. See, that was too risky for me to start off with. This topic, of course, has the potential to put all our backs up, whether we're single or married. We may have great pain in our own lives around this. We may have caused this pain to others. And we might agree with the church, we might agree that the church, like our former PM Pierre Trudeau said about the state, we might think the church has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. So conscious of the emotional minefield uh, this morning's sermon is, what I want to do is a few things. I want to briefly look at this commandment in its original context. I want to quickly touch on the main ways our current Western culture thinks about the place of sex in our lives. But I want to spend the bulk of our time together looking at what the seventh commandment teaches us about who God is, what God is like, and the wonderful and honest vision of what our lives can be like that God holds out to us, whether we're single or married. And the powerfully vivid story of the woman caught in adultery is going to be our guide. So quickly, original context. We're in approximately 13th century BCE, one of the greatest leaders in history, Moses. He has successfully humiliated the global superpower, ancient Egypt. He's led Pharaoh's entire workforce, the Israelite nation, into freedom. And they're now making their way through roughly 600 kilometers of desert to their new homeland promised by God, roughly the modern state of Israel. And along the way at Mount Sinai, God in his love gives people 10 laws, his top 10, that show us how to love God, love our neighbors, a life that can lead to human flourishing. I mean, what's not to love? For thousands of freed slaves to be successfully formed into a flourishing new nation, relationships between neighbors need to be built on mutual trust. And so the seventh commandment would help build stable families, hopefully ensuring the successful passing down of faith from one generation to the next. Physical intimacy was reserved for marriage because marriage reflected the covenant relationship between God and the Israelites. In both, two parties enter into an exclusive commitment. I'm yours, you're mine. So that's the original context. Now briefly, uh, the two views prevalent in our current culture. The first is what we can call sexual realism. In ancient Greco-Roman culture, sex was viewed like eating or sleeping. When you feel like it, do it. Just be careful not to overdo it, as with all the appetites. 
This is still a pretty prominent view today. Be careful, there can be negative consequences. And so through education, uh, we hope to create responsible practitioners of a physical activity. For sexual realists, sex is good as long as it's safe. The second common view is what we can probably call sexual romanticism. Sex is repressed creativity. Human beings are brimming with goodness, and it's oppressive society that uh, stifles it. And the second view uh, sees sex as an essential form of self-expression, right? Be yourself, find yourself. And for sexual romantics, it's the quality of love between two people that makes it right or wrong. Now, the Christian view is distinct from both of these, and it's not negative or repressive as our culture often portrays, and the church has actually also portrayed it that way. But in the Bible, God creates humanity giving in the joy of physical union within the lifelong commitment of marriage and comments on how good this is with an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, given to celebrating this. And if we find this an uncomfortable topic uh, to talk about in church, which I can certainly understand, it may be because we actually haven't read what the Bible says. So mindful of that historical context and our current culture, what does the seventh commandment show us about what God is like and God's wonderful and honest vision for our lives? Well, right off the bat, the fact that the command makes it into God's top 10 in the first place, it shows us that God cares about our most important relationships. And God understands the deep pain that a broken promise causes. We are not simply the products of a random evolutionary process, specks in an ever-expanding universe with a God, if one does exist, who is far off and unknowable and probably grumpy. No. The seventh commandment shows us a God who cares about the most intimate parts of our lives, a God who cares about what you are going home to tonight, whether it's sad, whether it's happy, a God who wants to show us how to flourish. We see in this commandment a God who cares about commitment in our most important relationships because God is a God of commitment. A God who enters into an exclusive relationship with the Israelite nation. I love you, says God. I rescued you from slavery. I will be your God. You will be my people. And through you, says God, I want to bless the whole world. Through you, I'm going to eventually send my Messiah. Through you, I want to invite the whole world to know me, to experience me, to be in loving relationship with me. We see a God who is utterly committed to, committed to us, who's faithful to us, even though we don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, even though I turn to other gods. There is simply no other relationship we can ever have that will be committed to us in this way, committed to us through any promises that I break through any tragedy, through any pain, committed to us even through death. The seventh commandment shows us a God who cares about the relationships that will enable us to flourish, shows us a God whose commitment to us cannot be broken. So what is this wonderful, because it's honest, vision for our personal lives, whether we're single or married, that the seventh commandment points us towards? Well, it's honest. 
God knows how the good gift of our bodies and sex can be used to judge, humiliate, dehumanize. And a contemporary example is the sexual exploitation, particularly of girls and women, that flourishes in the West in many culturally accepted ways. About 10 years ago, Sinead O'Connor, who died this week, she wrote a famous public letter uh, to younger singer Miley Cyrus about her blockbuster music video, Wrecking Ball. I'm extremely concerned for you that those around you have led you to believe that it is in any way cool to appear in a video like this. The music business doesn't care about you at all, or any of us. They will prostitute you for all you're worth, and when you're in rehab as a result of being prostituted, they'll be sending themselves in their yachts in Antigua, which they bought by selling your body. Today, we heard one of the most arresting accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' interaction with a woman caught in adultery. And this woman, she's about to potentially pay with her life, but not before she's humiliated. She's made to stand in front of all these men in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. And these religious leaders, they use sex to dehumanize this woman. They are not primarily concerned that she committed adultery. Listen to them. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Pay attention to this. They said this to test Jesus so that they might have some charge to bring against him. They didn't see this woman as a person. She was just someone to use, to trap Jesus. They didn't see her as valuable, as loved and cherished by God. She was simply a means to an end for these religious leaders. And the response of Jesus is so amazing because he's living in reality. He knows the pain of this complicated, messy situation. And what does he do? He diagnoses the religious leaders as the first problem. Verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. What Jesus calls out first is the spiritual pride and hypocrisy of these religious leaders who were twisting God's loving laws to build themselves up. And while we don't know what Jesus writes on the ground, some commentators have mused that it was the names of the women Jesus knows the men were sleeping with or fantasizing about. Jesus is living an honest reality. He's aware of the complicated gender and power dynamics at play, existing in most adultery, but specifically in this case, like, where's the man? And it's only after Jesus has called out the pride of the religious leaders and he is alone with this woman. He gives her back her dignity by speaking to her alone. Only then does he acknowledge what she's done, knowing the great damage the adultery will do to her and to the community. Adultery damages children. It destroys friendships. But Jesus literally saves her life, tells her to stop, frees her to go, to live a life of commitment. The Bible celebrates that we're sexual beings. Sexual beings have built within us a deep desire for commitment. 
And adultery is being with someone you're not willing to be emotionally, legally, or financially committed to. It's in effect saying, yes, I want to sleep with you, but I don't actually want to be tied to you. Adultery makes it to the top 10 because we were made to be people of commitment, made in the image of God, who is a God of commitment. In the recent Barbie movie, after Ken discovers the joys of patriarchy, he asks Barbie if she would like to be his long-term, long-distance, low-commitment, casual girlfriend. No, says Barbie. I don't. No, thanks. Whether we're single or married, we're made for commitment. You see, one, honest, and two, wonderful vision that God has for us as sexual beings is that we were made for commitment with faithfulness within marriage pointing us to the gospel message that Jesus brings. One, being honest about our brokenness and our need for forgiveness and mercy. And in the very same breath, number two, wonderfully telling us that we are more loved and precious in God's eyes than we could ever imagine. That's what Jesus wanted that woman to know. Jesus didn't condemn her to death. He did tell her to go and sin no more. It was honest, but it was wonderful. Learning how to follow Jesus, which is what we're all about here at St. Paul's, it means on the one hand that there's going to be a frank honesty and a vulnerability before God. We, we need help. And this honesty is made possible here, hopefully each Sunday, because of the wonderful security and safety we can have in God's committed love for us. God gave the committed relationship of marriage as a, a joyous way for human beings to say to each other, I belong completely and exclusively to you. It's a way to say to another person what God says to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because in Jesus, God says to us, I deeply love you. I'm going to be committed to you even through death. If we make radical autonomy our desire to make meaning for ourselves and put our own desires above all else, if we make such autonomy our highest good, we will create a world without love, a world of endemic conflict. The seventh commandment turns us away from the corrosion and loneliness of self-absorption and self-focus. It trains us instead to be self-giving, strengthening our capacity to love with intensity and purpose. Each week as we've unpacked these commandments, we've, we've tried to end by looking at some practical ways that they land in our daily lives. And please know that you can always come to me or Tyler or Ben or Nathan uh, to talk about any of this especially the painful and difficult bits. Uh, we'll listen, we'll talk, and we'll walk with you. Because our God is a personal God. He loves you, deeply cares about your life. So some, some quick uh, things to think about. Number one, be people of commitment in your friendships. Keep your word. Work hard. Follow through on what you say you're going to do. Be committed to your aging parents. Be committed to sharing your Christian faith with your children. Be committed to caring for the poor. 
knowing how God is committed to us in Jesus Christ, we are free to commit in our daily lives. Two, support those who are single and wish to be married. Be committed to those who are single in community, in this community. Support marriages. Pray for your spouse. And lastly, make those who are still vulnerable in our Western culture, women, children, the disabled, make them safe. Celebrate them on the street. Make them safe online. Do not commit adultery. As Jesus died on the cross, God tells us that he's eternally committed to us. As he rose from the dead, Jesus brings us the freedom to be people of commitment. Thanks be to God. Amen.